Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. We were thrilled to host directors Lisa Cortez and Liz Garbus for a fascinating conversation about their feature documentary, All In, The Fight for Democracy. Lisa and Liz spoke to director Darcia Martin about how they became involved with the project, how they made their directing partnership work and directing a feature documentary under COVID-19. This podcast was recorded after the 2020 US election, but before this year's stunning Georgia Senate election results, which Stacey Abrams, the film's central character, played such a key part in securing. We hope you enjoy this episode. Um, Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us to talk about All In, the fight for democracy. It's a fantastic film. Um, The Fight for Democracy examines the issue of voter suppression in the United States, uh, interweaving personal experiences with current activism uh, and historical insight. The film exposes um, a problem uh, that has corrupted American democracy from the beginning. Um, Liz Garbus is um, an Oscar nominated filmmaker known for Bobby Fischer Against the World. What Happened, uh, Miss Simone, uh, and a, a Girlhood, among so many other films. Uh, Lisa Cortez produced the Emmy-winning HBO documentary, The Apollo, which explored um, African-American history through the story of the legendary Apollo Theatre, and has now um, directed and produced with, um, with Liz this fantastic film. Um, welcome, Um, It's lovely to see you. Thanks so much for joining us this evening. I want to start off, um, Liz, by asking you how you first encountered this story of voter suppression. Oh, well, I guess there's two questions embedded in that question, which is how did we start making this film, Um, which is one story. And then, you know, how did we come to know voter suppression? And of course, Lisa Lisa and I both have our own personal experiences with that question. Um, But I'll, I'll, I'll go to the film. Um, and um, the film came to us from Stacey Abrams um, herself. She, um, as I'm sure people know, are, was a you know was running for governor in 2018 in Georgia, and um, you know it was a very very close race, and ultimately she did not become governor. And what you know she devoted her work towards. Um, increasing awareness of the obstacles towards voting and also historical awareness. She talked about um, an experience with um, a young um, a, a volunteer at Fair Fight, one of the, gr- the groups that she organized and said when we're, they were talking about the, the issues in Florida and the United States of returning citizens, which were um, men and women convicted of felonies um, who when they had completed their time were not given their right to vote. and. I think Stacy said something like, well, it's just like a poll tax. And, you know, this volunteer in her office was a young person and super activated, didn't know what poll tax meant. She was like, well, the, the, the volunteer was like, well, that's not an interesting name. We have to think of some other word for it. And it was just clear how so many people were confronting this issue of voter suppression anew and not sort of understanding this long historical trajectory. Um, you know, in this, in, the, in this case, it was a young person, but they're across all ages. Um, and, um, and I think for me and Lisa, the quest, the, you know, the magic hat trick was how do you tell a story that covers this large swath of history, but still give it a beating heart? You know, we've always wanted personal stories to anchor 
our filmmaking. And so Lisa and I had to talk Stacy into being in the film more than she had perhaps originally imagined. Um, and maybe Lisa, you want to add, add to that or? Well, you know, I, I think when, when Liz contacted me about joining her on this project, it was such a wonderful intersection of uh, being able to work with this incredible team, these amazing women on a subject very near and dear to my personal history. Um, and, you know, I think to really have a film that could be a part of a conversation. Um, and that conversation for me was, was rooted in the stories that I heard from my parents and my grandparents who were very active in the civil rights movement, um, suffered through indignities and, and kind of allowed me to become a filmmaker with a lens on interrogating this history and hopefully uh, creating stories that provide context for meaningful movement forward. So, I, I mean, what was incredible for me, well, first of all, so you also, you talked about, Liz, you mentioned there was some personal experience. So what was your personal experience of this? Uh, well, um, uh, my, so I think that, you know, a lot of white Americans do not experience firsthand voter suppression. They go, they vote, and, and it's a rather abstract term. Um, and you, you, you sort of heard about the history, you hear about the march across the Salma Grid, but it doesn't affect your life personally. Um, and, but I think that for me, when I first came to hear stories about it was through my father, who was a civil rights and civil liberties lawyer. And at a, at a young age, he told me about a case that he, um, that he took on before I was born. And it was the case of a woman named Henrietta Wright, who was a black woman in Mississippi, who uh, 20 days after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, went to register to vote at her county courthouse in Mississippi and completed the paperwork and drove home to her, the diner where she and her husband both lived and worked. And before she could make her way from the car into the apartment, she was picked up by police and placed under arrest. And the reason given was that she had gone through a stop sign. Now she'd driven that route, you know, tons of times. She said there's no stop sign there, but nonetheless, she was imprisoned and she was beaten that night. She was wearing also, I should say, when she went to vote, she was wearing a black power button. So she was somebody in the community. I think it was, it was, she was, it was a statement to, to take her out of free society. And they um, beat her that night. And the next day they sent her to a mental ward. Um, and um, he took this case and it was one of the first, he worked at the ACLU when he was a young lawyer. And um, so it was something that while I had the, you know, the, the blindness of privilege to not actually experience in my own life, I was aware certainly that that was privilege, that that was not the way it worked in America for all Americans. Uh, and Lisa, I, uh, did you have family members or have experience or your personal experience was yeah, my both um, Darcy, both my my. What's interesting is you know I'm a Afro Latina. My father is from Colombia, South America, and um, what I've discovered is not only did my grandparents and and parents in the U.S., but also my family in Latin America historically have also been involved in this 
long struggle for the franchise. And so this conversation about democracy, whether and the and the importance of the people having the will to have representation and exercising their vote, I saw not only from this perspective, but from a broader international one, because I think that is such an important driving force of the foundation of the United States, but also the inherent hypocrisy about access to the franchise here. I, I, even now, I'm slightly gobsmacked at the, the, the things you're telling me. Um, what was, what's very alien, I think, and an alien concept for a lot of populations outside America is um, this use of these amendments. Uh, I, I didn't know there were so many, apart from Ava DuVernay's um, film, The 13th. I didn't know there were all these other numbers. So um, were you always aware of these when you were going through your education in America? And also, had you always intended to explain that in the film? Uh, I think I was, I was definitely aware of the Reconstruction Amendments. Um, you know, and Tom Hasey Coates wrote an incredible book called We Were Eight Years in Power, which talks about, a lot of people thought it was about the Obama years. Actually, it was about Reconstruction, the Reconstruction Amendment, which the Reconstruction Amendments, which heralded in the, the period of Reconstruction where there was, you know, this expansion of the franchise and, um, real civic participation, flourishing that enabled um, black Americans to be elected to, this, to the Congress and as governors. Um, and so I was, I would certainly have been aware of, uh, of that. Um, and, and yes, I mean, that changing our constitution is a way that we have achieved broad social change. Um, it also has been an impediment. Um, and, you know, when you look at this Voting Rights Act of 1965, you know, there, there have been other ways to achieve social change in the civil rights movement by acts of Congress outside of constitutional amendments, which have such a high bar for passage. And there's a lot of talk in America today about a form, reforming the Electoral College or reforming the Supreme Court. Um, but the amount of, um, you know, representation that, that it would take to create a constitutional amendment is just not going to happen. So, yeah, it's, these, these amendments have been a fundamental part of American history and understanding American history and certainly for understanding this historic fight for the right to vote. And I think it's interesting, Darcy, is like, you know, we're both students of history and we were aware. But what's always interesting for us is this monster movie, this thriller component to how the story evolves to how the monster shows up and you think you've cut the head off and then two more heads appear with a different visage. But the, the targeted weaponization remains the same. And, and um, you know, it's like, it's like the TARDIS from Doctor Who keeps landing in different times, but this struggle with power and access to the power is one that is a continuum in our in our history. With that in mind, I mean, it's a feature length documentary about something that I would have thought would have you know over here would have been like a half hour show. So, at what point did you realize, guys, that, you know, we've got this huge story? What at what point did you think this isn't sixty minutes? This is feature length. How does that work? 
Oh, it's funny, Darcy. I thought you were going to go the other way, that you were going to say it should have been a six-hour series because I think Lisa and I would agree with that. Um, no, we, we do like things to be concise and powerful. But look, we were talking about the fight for the right to vote. And one of the things, you know, when Stacy first talked to us was, you know, and I alluded to it at the beginning that Lisa and I had to sort of woo her into sharing her personal story with us. You know, she, she said, I, you know, I don't want this to be the Stacey Abrams story. She, she had been approached by filmmakers. They want to follow her campaign, follow her race. That would be an amazing movie. Like, she's just so great. To, it's so amazing to be in her presence in person or on film. But, I, but she didn't want it to be reduced to one candidate, one political race. It becomes about them. And it becomes about um, 2018, Georgia, those circumstances it was important to put it in the context for of all of American history. Carol Anderson said, you know, you can't understand Georgia 2018 unless you understand the Mississippi plan of 1890. And, and what she meant, and I didn't know about the Mississippi plan of 1890 before working on this film. What she meant was, you know, after reconstruction and all the ways in which you know, the 14th Amendment gives Black folks the right to vote. How do you write laws that say we don't want Black folks to vote when the Constitution says Black folks can vote? And they figured out how to do that in the Mississippi Plan of 1890. And you see that happening in Georgia in 2018 after the Shelby County decision where polling places are closed. Lines are ridiculous. Their ID laws, which disproportionately affect certain parts of the population, that's how you keep people from voting, not just black folks, poor people, Native Americans, AP, like there's all kinds of people for whom uh, English language is, there's second handwriting, uh, you know, second uh, set of characters. So, I mean, there's all kinds of ways. So for us, certainly 30 minutes would have been like, whoop, that would have gone by because we were trying to put it in the context of this larger history. And if you don't, then it's like, there's the tree falls in the forest and you're not seeing the forest. You need to see that forest to understand. No, Georgia 2018 is no anomaly. Stacey Abrams is unique, but she's not that unique, you know, because this is part of a continuum and that was important to us. So a feature was certainly the shortest we could do. <laughs> so how much of the documentary was um, pre-planned and how much of the narrative as, you, as it started to unfold how much did that then have to influence, um, how much was the narrative influenced by the information that you received and the interviews that you carried out and the contributors you managed to get? You know, I think the historical timeline that we looked at was quite finite. Uh, what was, I think, what was most taxing was um, finding the contemporary stories whether it was with the returning citizens in Florida now or young Latinx people in Arizona. And then of course, Stacy's 2018 run to intersect with seminal moments in our historical timeline. Um, so uh, to answer you know, concisely, much of it was there. And of course there was unexpected moments that COVID brought um, and the Georgia primary uh, in June of 2020 um, that we wanted that to incorporate them 
into the story because they were a continuation of the thesis that we were building. How, how was that actually, uh, filming in co during COVID? Well, we, we were happily, uh, I think Lisa and I flew back from Atlanta from our last shoot, maybe it was March 9th, I think. And in New York City, the shutdown happened on March 13th. So that last shoot was, um, was right in the nick of time. Um, but then we did, of course, have to disperse our edit. Um, and we had a really amazing post-production team who quickly pivoted. Our editor had come. Um, she's an American, but she had moved to Portugal after Trump was elected. And she came, she came back to Brooklyn to edit the film with us. And then, but then was concerned that the, you know, Trump was talking about closing borders and all this stuff. So she went back to Portugal. So we had to sort of set up this um, transatlantic uh, edit system and we also had a, a local editor here working with us too um and it took a lot of getting used to um but with our with our team we did it and we knew we wanted this film to um to come out before the election before the u.s election so you know we we got we took a little extra time but we made it um and uh there are lots of bumps along the way lots of lessons learned um, as all of us kind of still continue trying to make films in this environment. Um, but, um, you know, the team was so committed and uh, there were a lot of sleepless nights getting it all done because um, it's not, there's nothing like being together in rooms and being able to troubleshoot things. And um, so it, it was definitely harder, but, but we got through it. I think one of the, what was really helpful when it was I got a great new pair of pajamas. So, you know, for those uh, 16 hour days or whatever, where it's like, I'm going to be in pajamas grinding it out. I, I was very happy with them. And, you know, we kept going, uh, you know, almost at times it felt close to a 24 hour cycle uh, because we were getting scenes from Portugal and looking at them here and making notes and our animator and illustrator were based in Berlin and Poland respectively. So there was a continuous flow of material to look at, comment and um, incorporate into a cut that was continuously um, evolving. Um, but, you know, I, I just tell everyone, get, get those pajamas at work as we are about to hunker down again um, and uh, give yourself time because things do not move as quickly, um, even with all of the great support and, you know, virtual convening that we were able to do. It sounds like you were both very early adopters of Zoom by the sounds of it, <laughs> you were, your process. Um, I... as. Most documentary makers um, start out with um, their filmmaking um, with a feeling that there's a project that they would like to make. Was there then a moment for you both when you knew you needed to make this film that was actually integral to educating a population or a world? Um, I mean, I think that... Um... I think, you know, like, like you all in the UK, we've been going through a real crisis here. And, you know, our, the very foundation of our democracy 
has been thwarted by claims of rigging this and voter fraud and all of these things. And, um, and the good part about that was that um, there was so much, people were talking about it, people were talking about voting, people were talking about elections, people were focused on it, but there was so much misinformation and disinformation. And so it did feel crucial to present it. And, and it, it's not that we were making an advocacy film for Joe Biden. You know, it was a film about American history and the fight for the right to vote. And voter participation in America is dismal. And that's partially by design. And it was like also to give folks the righteous indignation that, you know, you're, look, you know, if your vote didn't matter, they wouldn't be working so hard to take it away from you. And also when communities aren't participating, um, they're not represented. I mean, in Flint, Michigan, they had, they didn't have clean water for a year and a half, right? Like, well, how can you do that to a community? You can do that if you're not worried about getting voted out. How do you not worry about getting voted out? Well, you gerrymander, you close polling places, you do all of these things. So it was just so important to tie our well-being as humans and as a community, as a democracy to this fundamental right. Because I, when I was talking to people in the States during this, our lockdown and your lockdown, I could almost, the, the despair of what could happen if there wasn't change by the end of this year was almost tangible. And I just wondered if you sort of, in some ways, having taken on this responsibility, whether you felt any responsibility for, you know, what this, what your film could actually do. I mean, I think it should be shown in schools everywhere. If anything, we're emboldened by this working with, with Stacy and seeing what fear fight has done and been able to achieve. Um, on the educational front, we did create a, an, a social impact campaign um, on our website, allinforvoting.com. There's curriculums that are downloadable for high school and, and college students and um, you know discussion guides for community screenings. So I think it's, it's always really powerful when the message and the movement can find some alignment and be used as a tool to address an issue that has not been cured. Um, it still continues and the violence and intimidation that we're seeing happening now with the Senate runoffs in Georgia is, is a part of this long history. Um, and the responsibility, I think, for us is, as just as humans who care is, is to, you know, provide a North Star. And, and uh, hopefully this film has done that. Um, I, I think what I was pleasantly surprised with with the film, because there's so much information to take in, is that your use of animation, um, it's really effective, especially in the story of Maceo Snipes. Um, I just wondered if you could just tell us a bit more about that. Well, you know, Maceo Snipes, uh, if you haven't seen the film yet, was a World War II vet who returned and, um, you know, wanted to, had served in the army, wanted to come here and vote and was essentially lynched for doing so. And uh, he, uh, and there was one picture <laughs> of Maceo, one picture that existed. And of course, you know, filmmakers confront this problem in all, all the time and in all different ways. But in addition to that, there were also these stories that Stacy told 
um, and that there was an archive for in, in which we really wanted to put ourselves inside um, her psychology. So our, our, our task with our animator, who is a wonderful, well, our illustrator, who's Diana Ejeta, who's a, a fantastic um, artist who lives in Berlin, um, was to you know, give, psychologize those moments. And, um, you know, certainly for Maceo, it was through the amazing storytelling of Carol Anderson, who told the story that you could really feel it. And I think that helped Diana really get her hands, arms around it, as well as what other kind of, you know, archival materials we could give Diana to feel what it could have looked like, what it could have felt like, what the, you know, so that she could use, run her imagination from that. So how did you decide to split? Well, so you also use, as you say, graphics as well. So that, was that something you'd thought about doing before you went out filming as you started to set up, set up the, the filming and, and talking to people on, in interviews? Did you already start working out, okay, how are we gonna express um, and get over, across lots of all this information? How, how did that conversation come about? The graphics came after or, you know, as after the rough cut, um, it helped us to identify places where we felt it was really important to unpack some more complicated ideas through a graphic that could really translate them much more quickly and lucidly. Um, and uh, I mean, I think the one of, I always remember the first one that we started on was the, in the beginning, which is about the 6% of Americans being able to vote in the first election and finding ways to represent who Americans were at that time and who could not participate. And then the graph that boom, lands on the 6% being, you know, the white land owning um, men. Um, but I think, you know, story structure proceeded um, and almost gave us those pockets we landed on to um, insert our uh, our graphics. How did you How did you both decide to split the directing of the film? It was pretty organic. I mean, Lisa, we you know we said we did each of us did some interviews. Um, we had two edit rooms going, and sometimes you know we did we had a pretty compressed schedule, so. You know, Lisa would be working on a section with an editor. I would be working on a section with an editor. Obviously, we would come talk to each other at all times. And then, you know, of course, there was a massage. You know, they can't just kind of plunk together. Then it has to be massaged. But in that way, we were able to um, divide and conquer. Um, and then, you know, I think our own life experiences, being able to have the conversations that we had coming to this issue from our own personal experiences was invaluable to the process. Um, so in that way, it was, you know, it was really fruitful for, for, uh, for, well, for me as a filmmaker and hopefully for Lisa too. Well, to tell the truth, we actually spoke many, many times each day, um, and a, a gazillion emails that was, you know, I mean, as we were started off this conversation offline, you know, before the pandemic, we were all working together and could have this uh, immediacy of exchange. And so we just found a variety of tools, um, starting with our morning call every day with, our, with the group to look at what we had ahead of us and to answer different questions on the moving pieces. Uh, and then that followed with uh, 
many exchanges uh, during, you know, the course of the day and, you know, into the evening. Uh, just a quick question from Rui Hamid, um, which I, I, was, I wanted to ask too, actually, is uh, was it difficult in getting the film financed or did Amazon come in full, you know, full steam and, and, and supportive in the concept that you had in mind? I'll answer that and then I'll turn it over to Lisa's able, able uh, fill in whatever I've left out or neglected. Um, Amazon, you know, Stacy. I think there was a feeling in this country um, that this election was one of the most important. I mean, there have been many critical moments in our history. This is one of them. And that, um, you know, that that there was already, you know, a person occupying the most powerful office in our country who was casting um, doubt on our system. And I think that, you know, there was a lot of interest in supporting us making this film. And Amazon did come in at the beginning full steam and the passion of, there was a particular executive there, Ted Hope, who um, is a wonderful producer who started working at Amazon and is now back to producing himself. Just like, I think Lisa and I, we just felt his overall passion and commitment. He's like, I've always wanted to start a film about democracy, like democracy around the world. Like, and he just was so passionate about this conversation of democracy and its distortions. And um, so I think given Ted's energy and commitment, it made us feel really comfortable um, partnering them from the get-go and that they would support our vision and also our desire for this really robust outreach campaign, which was um, really Lisa spearheaded um, and could talk more about, but they were on board with that as well. So Lisa, um, so just going back um, in terms of, uh, did, were there any bits you wanted to fill in um, that uh, Liz? No, I, you know, I mean, the, the partnership with Amazon across the board has, has really been amazing. And this is not an infomercial for them, but um, you know, I, I've worked on many films and, and with varying experiences, but the enthusiasm across the board um, and the recognition of the importance of this uh, election uh, really helped for us to have this robust campaign and, and to lean into something that Stacy, you know, said and is kind of underlying um, you know, part of the success that we've seen happen in Georgia, um, which is you have to meet people where they are. And um, with that knowledge in hand, you know, our film has been available outside of the Amazon paywall many times. It's been on YouTube, uh, Twitch, Twitter, um, and the support for engagement of, of a bus tour that went to multiple states, parked in, in like Walmart, you know, parking lots, and not only screened the film, but register voters. Um, the, the, uh, to be able to collaborate with a partner who understands the importance of this history and how this history can potentially speak to those who are suffering from voter fatigue and get them excited about democracy again um, has been so heartening. Um, and uh, it definitely was also uh, empowered by, you know, our work with uh, the Raven Group and our incredible social impact manager, um, Ben O'Keefe too. 
Right. Um, you, we were talking earlier, you told me you finished the picture locked in May, right? Yes, end so, of May. At the end of May and, and then delivered in August. Um, so did the subsequent murder of George Floyd create any need to change any aspects of the film? Um, you know, I think what we've talked uh, on earlier is in many ways, you know, there's always something new. There's the, the murder of George Floyd, which obviously there's, uh, his brother has, there's a moment at the end of the film when he talks about participation is important. All of us must vote. Um, and, but what we're seeing that, you know, that there's a continuum to the story. It's not finite. Um, and so you, there was, you know, the U.S. Postal Service that was a story that emerged. Well, no, we didn't include it because it's just one more manifestation of the baseline story. Um, it, there will always be more. Unfortunately, voter suppression and the obstacles created for the access to the vote um, is evergreen at this time. It's, it's not a story of the past. Uh, and but so knowing that I think empowered us to feel comfortable to put pencils down so that we could get the film out in time to be part of a conversation uh, and knowing that there were going to continue to be more stories, but that the the fundamental basis uh, was the same and the manifestations, like I said, of the monster were just going to change its face. Uh, Ruhi would also like to follow up on his question, um, his earlier question. Um, have you seen a change in commissioning films that tell a different story? And is there an appetite for untold stories in the wake of Black Lives Matter? Uh, absolutely. Um, there has been a tremendous interest, support, uh, funding for diverse stories. I, you know, I think of my friends who wanted to tell the story about um, Black Wall Street uh, in Oklahoma, you know, a, a self-sufficient Black community that was raised to the ground and violence and intimidation and, and many you know men, women and children killed. Um, they couldn't you know get their, their, their story, their doc going and there's actually three that are happening now. Um, and uh, so it, it shows kind of this how the lens has broadened. Um, not only because in reaction to this moment, but also just recognition of audiences and, and the range of stories that people um, are interested in. Talking of audiences, um, Anne-Marie Goodwin, who's a fantastic uh, documentary maker, uh, isn't asking a question. She just wants to thank you so much for this documentary. She learned so much. She was shocked and emotionally moved. Uh, she says, I loved the use of animation and graphics, um, and uh, so did I. Um, I'm also really intrigued about this, this um, the extra footage. So how much extra footage is there if you then... <laughs> I'm, I know that I really didn't know this, so I'm, 
I'm really pleased to know. I'm going to go back and have another look. About how much extra um, footage is there? Um, well, you know, I think in, in terms of, first of all, thank you, Amarine. Thank you, um, Darcia. Uh, there's, you know, was a, a substantial interviews with that go in depth with everyone that you see in the film. Uh, and then uh, there's also a lot of historical footage that we discovered. Um, so, I mean, it could be multi-parts, uh, you know, six episodes, but uh, we landed on this as the best device is, you know, to getting, first of all, completing it in time to deliver uh, and also to have it move in a way uh, that, you know, it sometimes has the pacing of a thriller. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that's a part of the conciseness of the approach. I think you just answered my next question, because I was actually going to ask, what do you think is the key to getting your audience to really care about voter suppression and their voting rights? Something that Stacey said uh, very early on uh, that really stuck with Liz and I was that oftentimes people think when they go to the polls and they can't find their names uh, and because they have been purged and they weren't aware or their polling location is, is moved and they don't even know where to go to find where it's gone and they don't necessarily have a car and the means to travel you know, beyond the confines of their community. And because those are the things that happen, um, people think it's just them. They think it's singular. And to understand how calculated it is and how far reaching was something that was really grounding uh, for us to hear that from Stacy and then start to see how it played out through history, but also through, um, you know, right to right now. I was surprised at how emotional I felt in some of the um, in some of the scenes with people celebrating that certain they they'd got small victories. Were there any times that you were out filming that you were bringing these stories to us that you just felt so emotional, so choked up? Um, there, there's several, but uh, one that really stands out is uh, we went to uh, Phoenix, Arizona and spent time with the young people of, of Lucha. Uh, these are Latinx folks, uh, many who come from mixed documented households. You know, they, their parents might not be documented, but they are. Um, and they are so committed to the idea of democracy that they would go from, you know, parking lot to parking lot to fast food restaurant, like, and, and just ask every single person if they were registered, if they weren't, would they? And oftentimes, you know, we're not warmly greeted. There was many a time that the manager of the, the, you know, the local store would come out to chase them away to tell them they couldn't be there, even though they could be, um, you know, threatened, like, I'm going to call the police on you. Um, but they kept going. And 
they would call their friends and, and say, you know, come help us. Um, they were relentless. Um, and I think it speaks to a lot of what happened in Arizona when you see the commitment to making um, this most fundamental change. Um, well, John Dower wants to thank you for a hugely powerful and shocking film. And he said the big um, uh, contemporary pivot point seems to be uh, the 2013 national court ruling uh, to allow changes in voter registration rules. Do you see anything, any way this could be overturned and the system made fairer again? Um, well, thank you, John. What, you know, what he's referring to, as you've all seen, is in, in, you know, there's this tremendous progress that happens as a result of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And in 2013, when Shelby County v. Holder is passed, immediately, like hours after it's passed, there's all these strict laws that get passed in, in Texas, in Virginia, North Carolina. And it's amazing how these conservative forces were ready to repeal all of the progress made. Um, you know, the John Lewis Voting Act is, is sitting there on Mitch McConnell's desk. It's been sitting there for quite some time. I'm hoping that there will be change that will happen shortly uh, and we'll know in January um, that will allow for the important protections of the Voting Rights Act uh, that were gutted uh, and that are contained in the John Lewis Act to, for it to pass. Uh, that's what we need to, to happen. Were there not any stipulations about what you could say in the film, you know, being released so close to the elections? Or was that fine? No, there's, there's no restrictions, uh, uh, you know, because it was, uh, you know, I mean, there still is freedom of speech. And if there was anything that was of concern to us, we did vet it with our attorneys. Um, and also every statement that is made is based in fact. You know, there are many people on the conservative side who do not like this film, but no one has ever uh, questioned the facts that we presented. Wow. Um, well, I'm going to show it to all the children over here. So they're grateful um, for the, the rights they have. And I wish they'd go out and vote more. Uh, but I also um, want to say, I want to find out what's next for you. What are you doing next? Um, well, in the most immediate future, I am working with an, um, a nonpartisan group in Georgia called Black Voters Matter. I've uh, just finished directing some spots um, to engage uh, the folks of Georgia in the Senate runoffs in January, which are very important. Uh, and then I am also working on uh, a new documentary I'm uh, directing about a very important uh, historical institution. So I'll, I'll be able to share more on that later. Fantastic. Well, I just want to um, uh, I just want to thank you so much uh, for this amazing insight. I feel very privileged, and it is an absolutely fantastic film, which I'm going to watch again and again and again because there's so much information in there too. Um, so thank you so much for joining us this evening.
Thank you so much and to everyone who tuned in. I, I know it's late on uh, the UK and, and we really appreciate your sticking around to uh, join us in conversation. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.